The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now, leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out their website, andyanddon.com. There you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Also listen to old archive shows from the past and get caught up at andyanddon.com. Don.com. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all. Good morning, Scott. So, Good morning, Scott. You know, lots of chatter about, you know, and it's funny too, I, I, we're, we're roughly the same age, but uh, as people get into their late 50s, early 60s, obviously start talking about retirement more. Uh, and I, I think COVID-19 in, in some scenarios has pushed people there a little quicker than perhaps what they thought. But you've got an interesting case study on people who are planning for their retirement. They do, and this is uh, this is a conversation that I had with some uh, potential clients back in May. And you know, you think about in the environment of COVID at the time, and uh, it's you know obviously being able to meet face to face is something that Don and I both prefer to do. But uh, you know, the, the the reality is is that we have pivoted the whole our organization ig wealth management has pivoted to the point now where we can completely deal with people virtually and through digital online forms etc be able to bring on new clients and service existing clients without any problem so that's fantastic just because it allows for a continuity of service and the continuation of servicing our existing clients but also the capacity to bring on new clients and do everything virtually. So it, um, we still love the face-to-face, but uh, we can certainly accommodate the, uh, the virtual transition as well. So in a conversation with uh, Dave and Susan back in May, and uh, Dave was 63 uh, and Susan 57, they were looking to retire in a couple of years. So the target was for Dave to go at 65 in 2022. And um, Susan actually wanted to retire a year earlier at uh, 58 in uh, next November. And so um, that was part of their, you know, the big question was to look at their current situation and say, you know what, are we going to be able to do this? And um, what do we need to do to get to make sure that we're on track and we don't run out of money? So the goal was from an income standpoint to have $6,000 a month net after tax. And we were going to allow for inflation of 2.5% along the way. Uh, we always talk about sort of lifestyle things like replacing vehicles, etc. And um, their goal, typically what they've done is about every eight to nine years, they've re- uh, replaced a vehicle. And um, <clears throat> they did a big purchase of a vehicle just recently, and it was a 0% financing deal where they bought a, um, a new Ram uh, big truck for going up north, etc., and uh, so that is was financed at zero percent. So they've got that one, and they'll probably keep they'll run that one for quite a number of years, the next ten years. But going forward, the future vehicles are going to be a lot more modest. And so they wanted me to budget about twenty thousand for a new vehicle purchase plus inflation. And um, questions around Canada Pension Plan and old age security should uh, they take should they take them at retirement or should they defer? And um, and downsizing. So 
downsizing is something that's a phenomenon going on right now in the sense that people are looking to have been selling their larger homes in the city and looking to get out or get, get something out in the country with a little more room around them, I think, as a, co- as a result of our COVID lockdown scenario. So they have a, a home in, um, in Mississauga, and uh, they also have a cottage up in Muskoka. And so at, at retirement, um, when Dave turned 65, they would sell that in 2022 and purchase a new retirement home. And uh, the goal is to free up $200,000. So <clears throat> whatever um, they sell their home for at that point, they'll basically set aside two hundred grand and and look to what they can buy for the difference. And the focus, of course, will be spending more time up north as well. There was some inheritance and discussion about inheritance, but uh, we decided at the end of the day to not factor that in at all, uh, and we left that out of the plan. So when we ran a, a picture of their current situation and a net worth statement, the current net worth was about uh, $2.5 million, and that was a uh, investments of about 780000 so RRSPs, um, short-term accounts, etc., their real estate, they valued each property at about 800000 the home in Mississauga and the home in um, and the, and the cottage up north. But we did have to break down and find out what is the adjusted cost base for what did they pay for these properties uh, and just to understand what the tax implications are. And so the home in the city was 250000 now worth eight hundred, And the cottage up north was 150000 and paid for it, now worth eight hundred. So there's a larger capital gain on that cottage but um, they're planning to sell this house in the city in the near term. So uh, it, it, that was a good discussion point as well. So a couple of vehicles that they own as well, and the only liability is that um, the Ram uh, truck loan, which uh, roughly is about forty grand, and they're paying a thousand a month for that. So when we analyze their their assets and um, Susan was entitled to a defined benefit pension plan. And uh, Dave had no pension plan at work, but was accumulating through a group RSP and his own RRSPs uh, that he'd been adding to as well. So um, when we looked at that income, the, the desire for 6000 per month uh, net after tax plus inflation, and we looked at the current investments that they've got and the pension plans, they would not be able to sustain that. Very, very unlikely that they'd be able to sustain that through to age 90. And in fact, our Monte Carlo analysis came up with a 25% chance. So on our red light, yellow light, green light scenario, that was definitely in the red light zone. So that doesn't mean that they wouldn't be okay. They still would have her defined benefit pension plan. They would still have uh, Canada Pension Plan and Old Age Security coming in, and the opportunity perhaps to sell uh, one of their properties as well at that point. So it, it, although on the surface that might not look great, but there were still some options available to them, you know, reducing their lifestyle and or selling one of their properties down the road and living off that. But in the absence of doing that, we figure what could we do to try and improve this scenario and bump that up from 25%. So some of the tax planning strategies that we looked at was uh, maximizing Dave's RRSP every year for the next couple of years because he's in the highest tax bracket. And um, 
And basically, that should go into his own name. And the reason we want that to go into his own name is because when we looked at income splitting down the road, or just equalization of income, it looked to me that there was enough coming from the defined benefit pension plan for Susan that David need, needed to boost up his his retirement savings. And in fact, um, Susan had been adding to her RRSP, and uh, the recommendation is that she should stop doing that. Don't bother anymore because, A, she's retiring within a year. She's in a lower tax bracket, and, uh, and she's already contributing to her defined benefit pension plan. So there was no real tax savings by putting money into an RSP for her, as she takes it out, she'll be in a similar tax bracket. Um, obviously, once they both retire, converting those RRSPs to a RIF and begin to look at a monthly withdrawal strategy and uh, how much to take out and look at maybe year-end bonuses to them as well. With the sale of the house, the proceeds would be used immediately to top up, maximize their tax-free savings accounts, probably about 80000 each. So there's 160 of the 200. And then the other 40000 we talked about putting that into the fund bucket. And this is kind of that pot of money that, you know what, if we want to do something, we want to, uh, whatever it is, we've got money that we can use. It's not counted for in terms of our overall retirement plan. So they were also concerned about estate planning, and we looked at uh, how to deal with a cottage. And the cottage they want to keep in the family, so it's something that they don't want to sell, but there will be capital gains. And we estimated by the time they're 90, the actual capital gains tax will be about a million dollars, and probate tax is going to be about $90,000. So, you know, they were wondering should they gift it to their son now, and um, no, you know, it made sense at this point. There was too many complications there. Uh, to keep it in their name, uh, when they sell their own principal, the other residents at the time, they would be able to uh, use the principal residence exemption to minimize the tax and have cash available to pay off the uh, the capital gains tax on that. From their investment perspective, um, Susan is a moderate conservative, so roughly about 50% stocks, 50% bonds. Dave was a moderate aggressive risk, so 75% stocks, 25% bonds. And they didn't really have an asset allocation model, so they were kind of all over the place with their investments. So we wanted to create a solid asset allocation model for each of them to follow. We looked at the cost of their existing investments, which are for um, Susan are around 2.2% per year, and Dave was paying about 1.5% per year. By consolidating everything, we were able to actually lower their overall cost to and keep it at 1.5%, same as Dave was paying, but... Uh, we would have some savings on Susan's portfolio. And uh, obviously reviewing that portfolio regularly and rebalancing it annually would make sense as well as part of the ongoing process. And when we looked at their CPP Canada Pension Plan, we're actually still waiting. We've, we've requested some estimates on those from CRA and the website to get some more detailed information. And, um, you know, and by the time we sort of brought all of these little pieces together, we were able to redo and look at their new plan, and the Monte Carlo analysis came out at 73% success rate. So that just bumps them into the green light zone, which starts at about 70% in terms of, uh, of a score for understanding the risk of not running out of money. And um, so, so with that in mind, you know, we began to start the process of, of consolidating investment and 
that again, as I said today, is something that's in some ways easier than it used to be as institutions are allowing us to deal more virtually and electronically with, with clients and client uh, transfers as well. So uh, anyway, just a, just an example of the process as Don and I go through it to, to sort of understand where are you today and where is your current situation versus what is under the new plan, how can you improve your overall financial well-being by implementing a solid uh, financial and retirement plan. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now, leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can check out their website at andyanddon.com or call now and leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. We're talking about your personal financial health numbers. That, got that, I got to well, keep that one separate from all the others. No, <laughs> most time we talk about numbers, it is to do with health. And there is your blood pressure. And there's, you know, diabetes numbers. And there's all sorts of other ones. You know, are they good? Are they bad? Does that fall in the line? Well, the same really affects is, is to do with your financial health. And I've got a list of five here. There's probably a lot more. But probably the number one number that you, most people should look at every so often is your credit score. And that one comes in play a lot more than you think. So a lot of people think, oh, I really don't need to do that too much because that only affects me because I need to borrow money. And I'm not going to be borrowing money too much in the, in the near future. Or if you are going to be borrowing money, definitely you need your credit score. So it basically, um, that is true. It is used for borrowing money. So if you're going to get a mortgage or your car loan or whatever type of loan, line of credit, your interest rate would be based a lot on what your credit score is. Um, so basically, if your credit score is 720 or greater, you'll get probably the lowest rate that the bank will offer. Now, that being said, you still have to negotiate with the bank. They're not going to just um, send you, here's the best rate based on this. Sometimes a little bit of negotiation doesn't hurt, saying, you know what, I think we do a quarter percent less, and yes, they quite... It's funny how often they can. Um, credit scores range from 300 to 900. So the closer you get to the 900, obviously the better. So 720 is considered quite good. Um, it's also used for property insurance. So it's interesting um, if you're getting property insurance, the premiums that are being set by whoever is insuring you, they'll often look at your, your credit score, which I was unaware of actually. Um, employers, when they're selecting candidates, so if you're looking for a new job, they will actually go and check your credit score and say, is this person a good candidate or not? And it's almost like a bit of an intrusion on, on your privacy, but uh, apparently... Yeah, that doesn't uh, seem right. That seems very bizarre, almost too personal. Uh, well, what your credit score have to do with your job performance? You, you can't join IG Wealth Management without... Uh, submitting to a credit score. But see, that makes complete sense. Okay. 
But I mean, if not related to the industry, and, and, and matter of fact, refreshing to know that that's the case. But yeah. if not in the industry, doesn't that seem odd? Yeah, you know, I guess it depends on high, how high up the ladder you're going. So if you're into upper management uh, and you're not controlling your personal finances as well, how are you supposed to manage this large company, even though it has nothing to do with uh, money, per se? Um, if you're going to be begging groceries at, at one of the supermarkets, probably don't check your credit score. No. Yeah. So uh, it, it is an indication on basically how responsible you've been in terms of managing your personal affairs. And that's what they're looking at. And so, again, like uh, health, they'll, they often have numbers to measure your, you know, your obesity test. And the same idea, well, if you hit over this number, um, are you, is it because you're lifting a lot of weights and you have a lot of muscle mass and it's, and it's warranted? Or you are a higher risk because you've let yourself go and you could go run into diabetes and other things. So it's just another indication. They don't use this as a, a total line in the sand for most jobs, but it is used for a lot of jobs, as it turns out. Um, again, things uh, Equifax actually says 70% of all scores are greater than 720. So that means 70% are getting a very good score. That being said, 14% are under 650. And that 650 line in the sand is kind of like, okay, you're going to get a decent mortgage rate, but you're not going to get the best. And if you get below 650, you're definitely going to be looked upon as a higher risk. So that's the line in the sand. You definitely don't want to be below 650 because it's going to cost you more money. So this is, here's a perfect, interesting concept. You're trying to, you forget a couple bill payments, and you have the money in the bank, but you just didn't make the payment. And meanwhile, your credit score goes down because of it. And now, when you go to borrow money, you're actually going to pay a higher interest rate. Uh, or you're not going to get the job you want. Or they may increase your insurance premiums. Like It's absolutely amazing, and it's just incredible how important this is and it's one thing we just don't think about, but obviously that information is available. So there's ways to improve your score. Um, number one is simply monitor your payment history. Just be on time. Um, don't basically skip a payment. You know what? I, I got a uh, small credit card bill. It's only a $25 bill. It's just a small one. I'm just going to add it to the next one. Well, that's considered, it doesn't matter the amount. It's still a missed payment. And so just, don't miss it. Uh, number two, use credit wisely. So don't go over your limit is one thing. And actually, they actually suggest if you want to lower your credit limit, only use at the very most 35% of the credit available. So if you have a line of credit that, can, that offers you $10,000 potential of borrowing power, only borrow up to $3,500. If you've got a MasterCard or a Visa or American Express, and they say, oh, I guess Amex doesn't matter because they have a kind of an unlimited, but if you look at the end of the $5,000 limit, really don't go over 1700 If you're constantly hitting your head against the limit, they're thinking that you're not really managing in your higher risk. Now, isn't that what the, the lending institutions love, though, that person who's at the limit, and then they'll say, oh, we're gonna, we'll, get, we'll boost you from 5000 to 10000 So now, guess what? You won't you won't be at, at the, the you won't be bumping up against the top all the time. So they tell you until you're, uh, sometimes our habits are hard to change, right? Well, they're also counting on that you will be bouncing your head against the top just with a higher limit. Exactly. 
and it's uh, it's almost a drug credit for some people. And if they know they have more to access, they will hit the new limit. And so this is exactly in the bank's best interest, but not necessarily in the creditor's best interest. So um, increase your, your credit history. And this was an interesting, the longer you have a credit history, the better. So if you're sitting there with a, you know, a, an, a, a credit card that you got from when you, were, when you graduated from university, and it doesn't have a lot of perks. It doesn't cost you any money because usually they're just trying to get you hooked into their, their um, credit card. But now there's a lot of good ones. There's a gold card that you can get all these bells and whistles. Well, as soon as you get rid of that old card that you had for the last 20 years and get the new card, all the history is gone. And now you don't have very much history with the new card. And so actually it's best, believe it or not, to keep both cards. Now, I say that in one side. On the other side, if you've got 10 cards, that's also against your, your credit score. So the more cards you have, it's not great either. But certainly I wouldn't get rid of that old card because it does show a long-term history, and that's another thing that adds to that credit score. Um, and again, number four, coincidentally enough, is um, limit those credit cards or, or credit checks. I'm sorry, limit the credit checks. So if you're going to uh, a department store, say a... Um, Canadian Tire, and they offer a great perk on, on getting a new credit card. Oh, I'll get this one. And then you go to another store. These are the days we used to go shopping, and you had people actually selling them at the store to you, and you end up with all these department stores. Well, each time they do that, even if you get it and turn it down, it's, they do a credit check on you. And if you've got a lot of credit checks, it actually lowers your, car, lowers your credit score. And the reason is, it sounds like you're searching urgently looking for credit. You're desperate for credit, and it looks like you're living above your means just by constantly signing up for these new cards. So it's a great way to sometimes get these little perks that they offer. Where it might be oh, a new tie cat jacket or T-shirt, which they'll often have at a, at a tie cat game, or, or you go to the, you know, if you old, old days when you go to a Leaf game, they'd have a, a credit card with the Toronto Maple Leafs. And again, you sign up, and that's another credit check. Even if you cancel it after you got your T-shirt, okay? Uh, number five on, on, on ways to improve your credit score. Again, have a, it's better to have a mix of credit. So it's better to have, say, a credit card, a mortgage, a line of credit, than simply one type of credit. So if you only have a credit card and nothing else, or if you only have a mortgage and nothing else, or just a line of credit, it's not as good. Diversify, so to speak, your credit, and that will actually lower your credit score. So those are the reasons, um, uh, number one, in terms of personal uh, numbers, personal finance health numbers, the credit score is probably the most important. Number two is your personal savings rate. We all know what percent of your annual income should you save, Scott? All of it. Well, you got to eat. Drum roll, please. <laughs> I got a garden out the back. Uh, I would, well, I would say bare minimum ten uh, percent. There's that. That's the golden answer, and that's kind of the answer that every every book, every finance book has always suggested. Good work, by the way, Scott. Ten percent is kind of that line in the sand. If you just save ten percent of what you made, you can be financially independent. And you look at some of the pensions available, the 
superannuation through the teachers, they're saving about 12% just off their pay. So uh, you have no choice in this. So if you never saved anything else except for contributing to the pension, you would have a pretty good life just based on the income you'd get. And so it's kind of interesting. Uh, and I know there's a, a lot of books. One was called The Millionaire Next Door. In that one, the richest people just save 15%. And 10% was still great. But it wasn't the fact that we thought, they thought the richest people would have been the ones that were there the longest. So if you had multiple generations of listers that lived in Canada for the last 150 years, Andy should be extremely rich right now because their wealth would be passed on to the next one, on passed on to the next one, on to the next one. And so here we are, six or seven generations of listers, and therefore there would be a lot of wealth. It didn't turn out that way. And again, Andy, no, nothing against you. I'm sure you're doing just fine. But <laughs> it turns out it's not the ones with lots of generations. They spent it all. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. There seemed to be this comfort level that the first generation saved, the second generation understood how much they saved, the third generation spent it all. <laughs> it never got to the fourth generation. And the fourth had to start all over. So it turned out that it was the ones that just simply saved 10 to 15% were very financially independent. So I, I've created a, a scenario here. Let's say you got your first job at 25 and you're making 40000 a year. And every 10 years, you got a $10,000 pay increase. So we're not talking anything fantastic. By the time you're 55, you're making 70000 a year. So you've gone from 40000 to 50000 to 60000 to 70000 And you're 55 years old. And every way, along the way, you save 10% of that. So when you're 25, you made $40,000 and you saved $4,000. And by the way, that would accumulate it at 6%, $52,000 by the time you hit 35. Then you end up saving 5,000 a year until you're 45, and now you've accumulated 160. The next, you're now saving 6,000 a year when you're 45, and you're now at 366,000. And when finally that last 10 years, you're making 70,000 a year, which really in today's dollars is not a lot. You're, you would save 7000 of that, and you would end with about $750,000 at retirement at 65. Now, I only use 6% returns because that's the average that the equity funds outperform above inflation. So this would be very true to today's dollars. And so if you look at that, that 750 would pay you 43000 a year until 95, and then you'd run out of money. Well, if you take that 43000 add your CPP and OAS to that, that's a pretty good life. You're financially independent, as long as you didn't get a ton of debt and so forth. But at the end of the day, that's just simply saving 10% of what you made. And this is not a rich person. This is a very, if anything, this is a below average income throughout their lives. So if you took that 10%, put that into an RSP the whole way, you'd end up with $750,000. let us just say you then took the tax savings, and you're in the middle bracket, 30% tax bracket, you would then put that into RESPs for the first 20 years to pay for your two kids' education. Well, funny enough, that would actually accumulate to $52,000 in RESPs, just in tax refunds. Then the last 20 years, so there's 40 years while you're working, you'd end up accumulating another 63000 in tax-free savings accounts. And by doing that, you'd have a big retirement nest egg in terms of giving yourself an income, followed by a nice lump sum of tax-free money. So that's your personal savings rate. Then 
the other three rates, there's the real life ratio. The real life ratio really measures your ability to afford a home while paying for everything else, daycare, loans, basically life. And this is not what the banks often go through. They go through this, these ratios that don't include really everything you normally live and putting in vacations. My suggestion here is see a financial planner. I know there are some great calculators online, but I'd rather, you know, you should be seeking a financial planner to say, how much house can I truly afford? Not putting yourself right to the limit so you can't afford your daycare. Number four, your personal inflation rate. Um, I know Canada uh, CPI, Consumer Price Index, measures the rate of inflation in Canada, but that's their basket of goods. Who, what about your basket of goods? And yours may be very different. So what you want to look at is, you know, for example, tuition is going at a far greater pace than the CPI. And so you put in your inflation rate what you think you're actually spending and how much it's going up versus what your income's going up. And let's say hopefully your income is keeping up to your expenses. And finally, the fifth and probably the best report card you should be doing every year is your net worth number. What is your net worth? And that is your assets, less your debts, and you do that each year. It's almost a yearly checkup. Call it your physical. And this will say how much is that rising compared to other years. And uh, it's, it's a fantastic way to do things. We do this each time we visit our clients to make sure their net worth and relative, and you add up your investments, your house, everything else, and it, it really does show how you're progressing. And those ratios all come into play to develop a fantastic net worth. And that there is your five big numbers for personal financial health. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Check out their website at andyanddon.com or you can call now and leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. U.S. election coming up. We're talking about uh, Trump versus Clinton the election won ago. Uh, similarities, differences here? Yeah, this was, uh, as I was preparing for the show, thinking, boy, we've got the election coming up quickly. Uh, and I came across a white paper, which is a research paper that we do internally within uh, IG Wealth Management. And it was uh, written November 3rd, 2016. So exactly five days prior to the previous election, Trump versus Clinton. So, yeah, you're, you're listening. I, I, we did mean Clinton and not Biden. But <laughs> so in looking back at what uh, what the world saw, what we saw back in that time leading up to the election, what would be the biggest, uh, say, the biggest winners, the Trump winners and the Trump losers in, under the predictions back then prior to the election. So when thinking, when looking at uh, the Trump win, one of the biggest risks that uh, that surfaced was that there would be a serious risk to the U.S. economy if he follows through on his protectionist, anti-trade rhetoric and his threat to rip up existing treaties and impose new tariffs. 
And furthermore, there would be a projected massive increase in the deficit under his spending tax cut and his spending proposals uh, that would certainly spook the bond market, putting pressure on the U.S. dollar. So, you know, I'm thinking, did any of that really happen or to what extent did it happen? And, uh, and, and so that, you know, to something, I mean, obviously he did uh, change and renegotiate many of those existing treaties. And uh, but yet here we are. We're still uh, we're still standing, and Canada is still okay as well. Um, when we looked at the Trump, uh, and I'll compare that to Clinton as well. But the Trump winners and the Trump losers under this whole main or, or on on a Trump win back then, under the winner side, um, number one was energy. So Trump supported opening up more drilling, uh, Keystone XL pipeline and spoken out in favor of coal. Remember, he was going to resurrect coal as, a, as a, the solution to the energy crisis. Um, another winner, defense and homeland security, was expecting to increase intelligence work, more spending on defense, enforcing borders, and focusing on fighting ISIS. Number three, consumer discretionary would benefit from increased spending spurred by lower taxes and lower moderate in, and, and lower and moderate income workers. Uh, multinational companies with offshore cash, and that was favorable in the form of repatriation taxes that were being uh, talked about at the time so they could bring their money back to the U.S. without paying an enormous amount of tax. Uh, financials, so financial companies. Trump uh, was critical of the Fed's easy money policy, and he was proposing higher rates, which would boost bank profitability, and he opposed breaking up the big banks, and he said he would change or repeal the Dodd-Frank legislation as well. Uh, a winner would be private health insurers because we he wants to repeal the Affordable Care Act and replace it with private plans. Uh, domestic companies that were hurt by international competition because of his protectionism and anti-trade agenda. And infrastructure companies as his proposal to build a wall between U.S. and Mexico could be a boon to the industry. Well, that didn't get too far, did it? Uh, the big losers under the Trump scenario would have been the U.S. multinationals. So multinationals be put at a disadvantage with those trade wars. Uh, alternative energy. Trump opposes wind turbines, doesn't believe in climate change, and uh, was rolling would roll back uh, subsidies and tax breaks for the alternative and renewable energy sector. Well, I don't know. Tesla's still going strong, and we're seeing more electrified vehicles than ever before. Uh, it, seems, it seems that the consumer has taken place, has had, had a big say, and it wasn't simply one person, exactly. which is great to see. Yeah. Uh, outsourcing companies would be hurt as well. Uh, housing, expelling millions of Im illegal immigrants will reduce the demand for housing and rental accommodations. Tax reforms might even curtail tax breaks for housing and raise mortgage rates through housing refinance programs. Pharma, uh, Trump is, supports legislation to allow price negotiation with Medicare and prescription drugs and money transfer companies. So fewer illegal, fewer illegal migrants means fewer remittances to Mexico and other countries. And then on the, um, uh, on the Clinton uh, side of things, there was winners and losers as well. And basically the Clinton winners were infrastructure companies, solar renewable energy, hospitals and Medicaid, life science equipment makers, and selected manufacturers. And the Clinton losers would be oil and natural gas and coal, uh, pharma and biotech and managed care companies, financial companies, 
restaurants and retails hurt by higher minimum wages, multinationals, gun makers and tobacco, student loan lenders, and prison operators. Hmm. Well, there you go. I'm looking for this year's predictions to see what the Biden versus Trump win will be. And the final thing was they looked at one of the main predictors, and this has been true, uh, 19 out of the last 22 elections, that the performance of the S&P 500 in the three months prior to the election has correctly predicted the outcome in 19 of the last 22 contests. And that's since uh, everyone since 1984. Why? Because when the economy is doing well, the people tend to vote for keeping that same person in place. But when the economy is doing poorly, they tend to uh, vote them out and putting, bringing in someone new. So I just checked the performance in the last three months on the S&P 500 is plus 5.5%. So I'm, it's going to be a Trump victory, according to that. It's interesting uh, what happens when you factor in a pandemic, but unfortunately, yeah, there aren't any numbers for that right now, are there? You have to go back to 1918 to see what the market was doing back then. You only went to 1984, Andy. I know. That's a big asterisk <laughs> on that comment from, uh, yeah. from four years ago. That, uh, they didn't predict anything to do with a pandemic. I don't think too many Canadians are too anxious to see four more years of Trump, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. We. We have been planning your, we are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now, leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165. Quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now, leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. We're talking about the 1% tax opportunity here. Yes, if you're going to say there's anything that good could come out of a pandemic is the fact that they lowered interest rates. And as of July the 1st of this year, the prescribed rate, this is the rate that you can use, the government uses this, and you can actually lend um, to a spouse at this rate, is, it went from 2% to 1%. Now, when the economy was kind of ticking along a little bit, it was that 1% for quite some time in the, from the 0809 financial crisis. So it stayed there for quite some time, and then it went up to 2%. So right now, it's gone back to 1%. And the nice thing about this, if you create a spousal loan where you lend money to your spouse, it is an indefinite 1%. It never goes up. You, you, so, perfect example, let's say you had a million-dollar property. And call it a rental property or a sale of a business. And uh, just an example, uh, Mrs. Ritchie owned this, and, uh, and she sold it, and she's got this million dollars sitting in her account and she's you know at the same time she has a great pension she's got a 220 per year a year pension so she's got a great income going forward so any income from this million dollars is going to be taxed at the highest rate 53.53 percent so mr ritchie is working his job and he's making fifty thousand a year you know not bad but he's there and it would be great if you could take the interest from that million dollars and move it over to Mr. Ritchie's name, but you can't legally. There's attribution rules. And I know a lot of people say, well, we can just put it into a joint account. Legally, you cannot. 
and they do check these, particularly if they look at where did this million dollars come from when you sold that business or that rental property that was always being taxed in Mrs. Ritchie's hands. So if, the, if this $1 million earned was invested at 5%, earned one-third of it was an interest, one-third it was in dividends, and one-third was capital gains, the overall tax would be 20000 you'd, you'd make 5%, and of that $50,000 of return you would make, 20000 would go to the government, and you would keep $30,000. So not the worst thing, but not the best thing. And the reason it's not 53.53% is because you invested in things that pay dividends, that is taxed at 39%, and capital gains, which would have been taxed at about 26%. So you're getting some tax savings investing, not all in things that pay interest. The other reason is interest rates are so low, you're never going to get 5% on anything. So the only way you're going to get 5% is if you invest it in something that has a chance to make that kind of return. Now, let's say instead of just investing it in Mrs. Ritchie's hands, she lends Mr. Ritchie the whole million dollars at 1%. So what me- that means is now once a year, this is, this is a, a loan that is you know, documented. So you get a legal loan documented done and saying that this is an ongoing loan, just so that if you ever got audited, you, have, um, you do have the paperwork to show that this is official. So Mrs. Ritchie would then earn 10000 a year of interest because Mr. Ritchie, Mr. Ritchie has to pay $10,000. So he actually shows it, writes a check once a year, for this $10,000. And she has to pay tax, so she has to pay $5,353 tax on that at 53% tax bracket. So she, she would end up keeping $4,647 of that ten grand. Now, Mr. Ritchie invested the exact same way as we discussed before. And so he's making 5%. Now, he'd make 5%. He's only, he would only end up paying 20% tax on this out of this 50000 and so there's only $10,000 tax, plus he gets a tax deduction. Because when you, when you borrow money for investment purposes, the interest is tax deductible. So interesting enough that $10,000 that he's paying Mrs. Ritchie every year for this loan, that is a tax deduction for him. So that ends up saving, that $10,000, he's in a 40% tax bracket, would save $4,000 in tax. So at the end of the day, he ends up keeping... of the $50,000 of interest. And so this ends up saving uh, a lot of money. At the end of the year, it saves $8,647 every year this is going on. And what a deal. If if this were to carry on for only 10 years, that's $86,000 in tax savings. And again, uh, because that 1% is indefinite, this could be going on for the rest of their lives. And you can also end it at any time, meaning, Mr. Ritchie, if it doesn't work out anymore, and let's say they're in the exact same tax bracket, Mr. Ritchie can simply pay off the loan and equalize it. And so if it, if it makes sense. But if you didn't, and this, this went on for 20 years, that's $172,000 you're not paying the government. And this is just an absolute guarantee. There's so many people that are missing this um, that fall into these circumstances, and you say, well, a million dollars is a lot of money. Absolutely, it's a lot of money. But how much is your house worth these days? How much is your cottage worth? And some people are inheriting a cottage or they're getting shares of a family business. And, I, you know, obviously a million dollars isn't as much as we used to think of a million dollars back in the 80s. It's still a lot of money. 
But when you're looking at your neighbor's house being worth a million dollars and it was only worth 300000 not long ago, it's not as, as uncommon as you think. So here's an opportunity. Definitely speak to your financial planner about how a 1% prescribed loan would make sense in your circumstance. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, right now. Leave a message. They will get back to you at 905-529-7165. And check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. There you can listen to old archive shows or ask a question via their listener inquiry button. Thank you, gentlemen. Enjoy the U.S. election. It should be interesting. Thanks so much. Happy Halloween, everybody. Yes, thanks, everybody. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.